Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thanks to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech supporting digital native and non-native businesses in the financial services sector. You can check them out at hellozai.com. Our guest today is in person, our first in-person episode ever. And that is thanks to the sponsorship by Zai. We have further investment to have new cameras. We have several of them on us now. It's kind of uncomfortable, right, Craig? (laughs) His book is Business Book of the Year in 2020. He published it during the pandemic, and the pandemic only accelerated the need for this book. He is author of The Human Edge. Greg Orm, welcome to the show. Uh, Great to be here in Dublin, Aidan. It's fantastic. Does that mean you're going to play for my flight now? Now you've got sponsorship. That's fantastic. Thank you. Damn it, I shouldn't have said it yet. So great to have you with us, man. Great to meet you because you've been on the show before. I have. And we were saying, weren't we, just before we started recording, I feel like you're a a mate, a friend, even though this, I have only met you now for for an hour, but we got to be friendly during the lockdown. I came on your podcast. I dropped something in your coffee just to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm feeling a bit woozy. Uh, So yeah, yeah, it's really great to be here. Yeah. And and it's funny, that thing you said, and I said this and I'll share this with our audience as well, the the bond you make through the show is just incredible. I find it so incredible and it's it's lovely. And it just actually reinforces this concept I, I think about life, that this whole concept of spaceship Earth. I don't know if you've heard about this, but no. the, the concept is essentially that we're all swirling through the universe on this spaceship Earth and it's got limited resources and there's no passengers there's only crew so we're all there to actually help each other in some way and and it's just it's a great mental model that i have that's very useful and and so useful for your book the human edge as well yeah that's great well good to be on the deck with you (laughs) you know i think one of the reasons i connected to you aiden is that you are a genuinely curious person I don't mean in a weird way, like curious. I mean, you are genuine. You were so curious about the book. And I know you read all the books of the people who come on the show every week. And uh, but that must give you an amazing perspective. So It's amazing. And, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is the four C's. We're going to get into that. But the other thing that I, I find it incredible. So we'll talk about the four C's in a second. But it, also the E that we talked about. Yeah. It's empathy. And empathy is so important for this world we're going through. And and I, I like that aspect of empathy from Spaceship Earth as well. The whole yeah. aspect of, well, I can't be judgmental of this other person or I can't make, cast assumptions because I actually have no idea what's going on inside the world because we're all subject to these biases that make us human. Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, obviously in the book, I write about the human capabilities that we need as people and as leaders. And that I was writing that before the, all this crazy COVID stuff happened. But, you know, I don't write a lot about empathy in the book, but to me, it's one of those human capabilities that's accelerated through this weird period, because one, we've seen our own mortality. You know, I've lost people, uh, older members of my family. We've seen that life can be a bit absurd and strange and cruel. And also they're just, you know, obviously we'll talk a little bit about organizational leadership today because that's, you know, where we both spend a lot of our time. I think because we're in a remote world now, and I think, you know, the I'm afraid to say Zoom calls aren't going anywhere. We're going to have a hybrid world. And also we've got this interesting diversity and inclusion agenda that that's also been accelerated as well as technology. I think that idea of walking in somebody else's emotional shoes, that ability to do that, that's become more important. 
for people uh, in organizations. It sure is. And we'll talk about that because you talk about that in your work and your your workshops as well about, and, and we're going to talk about this today. It's not just about the four C's. It's about actually implementing them in the organizations as well, because that's the hard bit. Talking about them is easy bit. So yeah. maybe we'll, we'll, how about this? So I shared with you beforehand, there's an apocalyptic vision put out there on the internet. And it was with Elon Musk in one of his many interviews. Yeah. And what I'll do is I'm going to share a little excerpt of that, and then we'll we'll dissect it. The first one is where he talks here on this little clip about the idea that AI is an existential threat. In the past, it has been bad, but not um, something which represented a uh, you know a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. Um, in a way that car accidents, uh, airplane crashes, um, faulty drugs, uh, or bad food were, were not. They were, not they, they were harmful to, to uh, a set of individuals within society, of course, but they were not harmful to society as a whole. Um, AI is a fundamental existential risk for human civilization. Elon Musk, what do you make of that? Well... Uh, what can we say? It's classic Elon Musk, isn't it? Uh, he talks, he gives this big apocalyptic uh, vision of AI, which is not new to anyone. Let's face it, when anyone's been talking about AI for the, AI for the last 10 years, the sort of lurid headlines have been about the Terminator, you know, the, the whole Skynet thing. But then he kind of, his argument then goes into electric vehicles and uh, autonomous vehicles, uh, autonomous driving in the next 10 years, 20 years, which I agree with, but one doesn't equal the other. That's that's where I take issue with Elon there. Yeah, and, and uh, it's why I wore my pin here, you know, the pins yeah. I wear for the show. So this one is uh, Robert Patrick in Terminator 2, where he gets shot in the eye and his, he yeah. comes back into his form again. So that's why I wore that. I was like going, the human edge, where can I go with this? I was like, I don't have any pins of humans. <laughs> I'll use this one. Thank God I can use it eventually. It, it works with Elon's argument. I it's, mean, what do you think of what he said? I think, because actually what I'll do is I'll play his next clip because I, I think it ties in nicely to this clip, which is where he talks about regulation. So roll it there and we'll, we'll dissect it in a second. AI is a rare case where I think we need to be proactive in regulation instead of reactive. Um, because I think by the time... We are reactive in AI regulation. It's too late. Um, and no, normally the way regulations are set up is that a whole bunch of bad things happen. There's a public outcry. The, the, and then after many years, a regulatory agency is set up to regulate that industry. Um, and there's a bunch of opposition from companies who don't like being told what to do by regulators. Um, anyway, it takes forever. There's a role for regulators. Um, that's very important. Um, and I'm against overregulation for sure. Uh, but man, we've, I think we better get on that with AI. In that clip, he talks about regulation. And that's where I think it's important because I, it's not that I don't have faith in governments, but the people who know most about this aren't working for the governments. They're working for the companies who are competing with each other to try and get to the top with AI because of it's such a competitive advantage. That's the problem for me is that we don't have these people working in governments 
foreseeing that the problems that are inevitably going to happen. So that's where where I feel we're at a weakness. Yeah. I mean, full disclosure, I'm not an engineer or a, a, a scientist, a roboticist. Well, I am. Uh, Greg, are you? Yeah. That was you were keeping <laughs> it's a that hobby of secret. Mine. Uh, but I am someone who studied AI in terms of its how it impacts the human being and the leader. And so my take on it is Elon Musk's vision in the first instance of the apocalypse of the singularity when. AI is so powerful, all pervasive on all these servers across Silicon Valley and suddenly gets consciousness and decides it's more important than we are. Well, I think that's a very long time away. Uh, I think mo- they asked, actually asked all the AI experts, uh, I seem to remember from my book, which I wrote a long time ago, <laughs> and it was something like 50 years away. So that that may happen. I'm not sure about that. But sort of stepping back, I do agree there should be regulation because... One of the reasons there's a lot of excitement about AI uh, is because it's a technology with enormous power. And whenever you've got anything with enormous power, it's got enormous capabilities for good. And also it's pretty scary. So we definitely need regulation. But stepping back from that in terms of how it affects us as human beings, this is my take on it, that yes, in the next five to 10 years, if you can replicate all the keystrokes and processes in any job, it will be fully automated by AI. I mean, for the first time in history, machines are coming for white collar jobs. You know, they've obviously long taken human labor out of the process. If you go back to the first industrial revolution, it was steam power that took arms and legs. And now parts of our brain are being sliced away by by machines. And so if you are in those jobs, such as being a long haul uh, lorry driver or a taxi driver or um, an, uh, an assistant, an executive assistant, you should probably watch, watch out. But the reality is for the rest of us in more complex jobs, actually, it'll be small parts of our jobs, the repetitious parts of our jobs that will be cheese sliced away. And that leaves a space for us as human beings to actually excel. Um, what I really love uh, about this debate is it was put very nicely by a um, a roboticist called Hans Moravec. And I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Aidan. He, he talks about, if you think about human skills as a geography with the mountain peaks and then the valleys, the valleys have been filling up with AI water for years. You know, it took calculation, it took playing chess. And the reality is those things, anyone who can do that to a high level, Gary Kasparov or those, those black women who actually wrote the, um, wrote the calculations that sent men to the moon in 1960, we should hold those human beings in awe. But the reality is that's very easy for a machine. And we should be heading to the mountaintops for the things that's very difficult for machines. Whatever Elon says, it's difficult for a machine to just go and pick your lunch from a breakfast counter, return to the table, read the expression of someone opposite you, try and empathize with them, have passion about your work, have a sense of humor, uh, collate ideas across boundaries and connect the dots. Those are the things that we are brilliant at and we have got a huge advantage. I wrote recently about this idea that uh, we have at home a uh, an iRobot, you know, the Roomba vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And I remember when it first it came out, because one of my jobs on a Saturday was to vacuum the house. And when it first came out, it was kind of, it was great. But I was like kind of going, 
it's a bit animosity towards us. Like, kind of going, I still do a better job than this damn Roomba, right? But I, what I thought was really interesting was, if you put something in Roomba's way, it has to remap the territory, right? And I use that as a as a mental model to go, well, actually, in an age of AI, we have to re- remap the mental map, the mental territory. And I thought that was a nice way to think about your book, because it's a way we need to remap the mental model for a new age, where jobs are getting cheese sliced away, where we need to lean into what makes us more human. Because really, I'm, and the, the term computers actually, as you know, refer to people before yeah. who are number crunchers, essentially. Right. So we need to be less computer like and more human like, which is where nice segue for the four C's comes in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Don't don't fight a battle you're going to lose. Differentiate with the skills that, you know, I, was, I gave um, the reason I'm over here and this reason isn't, doesn't have to pay for my flight is I was giving a, a keynote <laughs> few, yesterday few. and talking about empathy. That's Christmas presents for the kids. <laughs> I, was talking about, uh, I was talking about leadership capabilities of curiosity and creativity and empathy. And if I tried that 20 years ago at a leadership conference, I'd have been run out of town. But the, the reality is all, all the statistics show that's what's been valued by organizations. That's what's been valued by CEOs. The, the territory has indeed been remapped. I love that. That's great. And that, that's difficult because one of the things I thought we'd do, because if you haven't heard, Greg and I did an episode probably about a year ago now, Greg, yeah. and it was remote, it was on Zoom. And in there, we talk deeply about the book. And I wanted to, to build on that because these four C's are extremely important for all of us in this age of change, this new industrial revolution, if you want to call that, or technological or mental revolution. But I wanted to talk about each of those individually. So how about this way we go systematically take the C and then go, well, how do I actually bring that into my organization? And then as you do in the book, you give loads of little tips and tricks and exercises that we can each of us do. We can take one exercise that we can do in an organization to build that muscle. Yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. And, and I'm n- now worrying because computers also have excellent memories. Uh, <laughs> and even when you, you know this, Aidan, even when you've written your own book, you're thinking, can I remember all yeah. that stuff? Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show on the screen here as well to help our audience as well, the four C's. So they are consciousness, creativity, collaboration, and curiosity. So I'll finish with curiosity because that, that for me, as you said, drives me for the yeah, show all the sure. time. So so consciousness is number one. Yeah. Okay. So for, for obviously when you're writing a book, you try and match four C's. Uh, but And under each of those C's in the book, there are two what I call dance steps. And the reason I call them dance steps is like if you learn a dance, you can then uh, learn one dance step, you can put it in any order with other dance steps and make it your own. So You haven't the, seen me dance, man. Uh, I haven't not seen pretty. I'm, I'm looking forward to The Roomba to that. is better. Like, that would be that pretty way. awesome. <laughs> um, so the dance steps that sit under consciousness are uh, focus, the ability to find time and space ironically, in a digitally distracted world where we're being digitally distracted every day by AI-enabled social media, amongst other things, which is slightly strange, isn't it, that you have to to be to differentiate from machines, you occasionally need to disconnect from them. And the other one, which I, I talk a lot about, not surprisingly with leaders and teams, is the idea of purpose, our why rather than the, you know, not what we do, not how we do it, but why we do it. Because that's a very human idea. If you think about computers, they don't really think about why they do what they do. 
It's important to us uh, and very powerful. Before I talk about exactly how you do it, it's it's important to realize what it does to you. Uh, You know, if you have a clear why of why you work, for example, it actually, we've long known it's been hugely psychologically motivating. And, you know, we all know that the top sports people, the top business people, the top entrepreneurs understand the why. But we now know it's kind of deep in our human brain. It's uh, in your brain. There's a thing called the seeking system that when you understand your why, it emits a neurotransmitter called dopamine that is the one that gets you going. It gets you up in the morning. So to be able to turn that on, you can become your own drug dealer. You know, uh, and unlike most drug dealers, you're encouraging yourself to get off the settee rather than lie there. So that's, to me, that's, that's everything for teams and leaders. You know, that motivation to, to have the courage, to have the, the idea that you've got to step forward. So there's lots of different ways to get that into your life. I think firstly, it's an inside out trait. I think if you're talking about a why purpose to other people, it's a good idea to have a think about your own. So literally, I'd advise anyone listening to spend 10 minutes and try and approach that question. It's, and it's difficult for people. You know, we, we spoke beforehand. We, we had a coffee with a lovely coffee across the road beforehand. And one of the things we're talking about was the other things we do, exact coaching being one of those things. But one of the things I find so interesting is I had a guy on the show before, a guy called Manfred Ketz the Fleece. Brilliant name. He is one of the leading leaders in the world on executive coaching, coaches, CEO. One of his books called The CEO Whisper. But I, when I was talking to him, I was saying that one of the things I find most difficulty, difficulty with with my coachees is they just want a to-do list. So they want to tell me what to do. And I'm going, well, before you even write your to-do list, you have to have a to-be list. What do you want to be? What's your vision of yourself? What's your why? What's your purpose? Because that dictates your to-do list. Yeah. And it's beautifully put. And that's so true. And, and to think about it in terms of coaching someone, obviously, we're all trying to coach ourselves on an amateur basis all the time. And and the tendency to go to the what, to the list of actions and not understand the bigger picture of how, you know, a why is not only motivational, uh, you know, it's been called a North Star. It's what you follow. It's my friend Brian Bacon at Oxford Leadership calls it the kebab stick. <laughs> you know, the kebab stick goes through all the bits of your life and tries to pull it together. So trying to get that first. And then, so I think the question we're getting at here is how do you get it into a team, right? So I think one thing I talk to leaders about is telling stories that that really bring the emotional part of it because it's an emotional concept. We, it's rational, but it's also emotional uh, about, you know, why I do what I do. So, you know, my why, and I can never, I never come out with it the same way, but it's really, I know I'm in, in purpose mode when I'm helping other people to learn and to grow. That, that, that is what, you know, really turns me on. So if you've got a company that's producing a product and has a strategy, telling stories about what that does is proven actually to really bring out that that sense of connection. And I'll tell you a story. I was working with a a senior executive for an automotive company uh, that made the safety products in the company. And I, I asked them this question, how do you get the why out to your your team. So he said, every year we have a mangled car 
and we put it in the atrium of our large factory and the thousand or so workers gather around. And next to the car is are some people. And last year it was a family, uh, a husband and wife and two small children. And we simply tell the story of why that family is there. And they are only there because of the safety features manufactured in that plant. Now, just telling that story, I'm not even involved and I can feel the hair, mm. what left I've got of the hairs on the back of my neck standing up. That is purpose. And that is leadership with purpose, connecting people to the ripples of how you're affecting other human beings. So I know, I love that, by the way, that's just a wonderful way of doing it. But th- even that, the storytelling evokes imagery and we're, we're vision, we're visual animals. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I, I find that fascinating that yes, many of our audience will be listening on audio only, but we are storytelling animals. We're visual creatures back 200,000 years ago when we were on the great savannas, we navigated the world by vision while all other animals navigated by sense of smell. So they're pheromones. And we forget that. And that visual is created through storytelling, no matter what the medium is. And, and it's just so powerful. And even that story just, it does really evoke so many emotions. Moving on then, because this is tightly connected to the next one. And I'm skipping curiosity, which comes next in the book. But I wanted to go to creativity. Yeah. Because in so many organizations, there's this huge desire for creativity. There's an espoused let's we're a creative organization we're an innovative organization it's written on the walls it's written in mission statements but then when creative people join those companies they quickly get ostracized or or ejected or or jettisoned from the ship of the organization and that's a huge problem because leaderships want it but they don't know how to welcome it or create the environment for it yeah that's so true and uh uh as you know i i the human edge is like this manual for everybody. I, I actually deliberately wrote it not as a leadership book, although I, you know, in my work, I use it as a leadership framework. My first book, The Spark, was how to lead and manage for creativity. And, and to cut the story short about what that book's about, it really is about your job as a leader, where creativity is concerned, is about crafting the environment. Because that is everything about... Uh, whether people will bring this innate thing that we have. We're all creative to a different sense, but we've all got creativity within us, the ability to join the dots, come up with something new. It's a human uh, attribute, but it's very, very inhibited by environments that have any fear in it. Uh, Fear kills creativity, stone dead. But also you need to provide a resource of time for people to think, to work together, to collaborate, to to use their collective intelligence. Uh, We'll get to curiosity in a minute, but to be curious, to learn, to gather the cognitive fuel. So um, one of the things that started me in this whole journey about 15 years ago was the knowledge. There's there's, um, uh, an American academic called Teresa Amabile, who was kind of doyen of the creativity world. And she did a study, a very big study of most organizations and came up with a really rather depressing conclusion that creativity is killed more often than encouraged in organizations. And it's mostly accidental. So there's a, there's a balance. I used to call it the yin and yang of creative leadership between these things. Of course, we all have to deliver and execute, which means just getting things done. 
all that's 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 business right and the reason creativity sits rather uncomfortably in business is it's on a balance you have to occasionally as a leader switch focus and say to your team right now we're opening up this space we're going to take time we're not going to be right we're going to experiment Mm -hmm. and it's the leader's job and it's probably more sophisticated than any leader's job in industrial history to do that to go between execution and creativity and and hold that tension that tension is is the hallmark of innovation really isn't it it's the tension between leadership and management between explore and exploit is yeah. just other language for that that Alex Osterwalder for example you just that's that's magnificent just again to evoke those visions in everybody's mind so that that's kind of but how what's the how of that then so Amy Edmondson was on the show before talking about her wonderful findings on psychological safety and one of the ways I kind of processed that was that there's a great uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Chich Nan Han or something like that. He's a Buddhist monk and he's all these wonderful books. But he said, when lettuce doesn't grow, the farmer doesn't turn to lettuce and go, grow, goddammit, lettuce. It's like, it doesn't blame the lettuce. What you do is you actually look at the environment. And yeah. the same idea of about the leader of an organization being the cultivator of the soil to create the right environment in order for the crops to grow, to pick weeds if they need to be picked, to add nutrients if they need to be done, to till the soil, to water it. That becomes so important. But how? So the shift from that tension of the way things used to be, where I was measured on my results, my technical skills to creating the environment is a difficult one because that needs a different expectation on leaders in organizations. And that, that for me, I see as a huge problem because that means the board need to change. And oftentimes the board members are from the way things used yeah. to be. Yeah. And, and that's, well, take that last point. Uh, it's a, there's quite a few questions in mm. what you were just saying there, but you know, you and I both work on organizational transformation and leadership. It's so much easier when it's come coming from a hierarchical position because that's the way the organizations run and so often it's not the board gets you in and goes will you deal with those people we're fine though <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah yeah it's always a bit like uh well i think you need to rethink that yeah but um yeah the question you know how do you do creativity is obviously kind of a big big area <laughs> but let's start with amy edmondson because i'm a fan of hers as well And we're talking about environment. I think one of the key things, we talked about fear, and that's obviously the title of her book. Um, By the way, there were really interesting uh, experiments they did on rats. And uh, they had rats in a cage who were playing. And by the way, rats giggle. Did you know that? They have this high-pitched giggle. It's really cool. And then they put a cat's... uh, Thankfully, I I don't know. (laughs) Some cat fur in the cage. And the rats just stop playing. Wow. And we humans are just the same. As soon as we have a fearful environment, we stop playing. So that's what why her book is such, I think that her book and the science that surrounds it on psychological safety, I think is one of the big, the big pieces of leadership knowledge that anybody should know about. And the first thing you need to know is what does that mean? What does psychological safety mean? It means that you and I feel safe to take an interpersonal risk, which means if you're my boss, Aiden, I'm free to say, I've got an idea. Or I'm not sure we're doing this right, Aidan. Or I think we just made a mistake. Can we learn from that? So many organizations don't have that. And that's the first step to having interesting uh, conversations where you can play with ideas and actually clash. And 
disagree agreeably. That that is absolutely the leader's job to to craft that environment. So how does the leader do that? I think they need to start embodying uh, a certain amount of humility and vulnerability and an, and an acknowledgement that things don't always work out. They need to give people the time and space to do that. And, and perhaps one really practical thing that I always say to people is ask more questions and better and open questions, because it sends a really powerful signal. If the leader is asking the group of people genuinely, by the way, authentic questions that they really do are curious about the answers to, uh, because it's it's sort of saying, one, I can't predict the future. Two, I'm not the smartest person in the room. And three, maybe the answer is out there in this room or the people we know. So just to be clear about what I mean about what's a good question, I mean open questions, not closed questions. So closed questions lead to a yes or no answer. They're sort of what prosecution lawyers use in in court. Open questions are like, um, that lead to an open creative conversation, such as, uh, why do we do it this way? How might we try another way? Uh, Have you seen what our customers were saying? You know, those kind of questions are so often missing in, in leadership. And that is a key way, as well as the psychological safety, to start creating that environment where people step in and start using their innate creativity. And that goes back to measurement of leadership, because many leaders believe they need to be the ones with the answers. And for them to let go of that and go, I don't need to have all the answers, but I need to actually have the people who have the answers is a big shift for many leaders because they feel they have to do it. And there's this kind of delegation of that skill or the need to have all the answers all the time. That's really important. I wanted to share one thing with you. I don't know if you noticed, we had Daniel Amen on the show before, brain, uh, brilliant guy on the brain. He's written many books on change your brain, change your life, etc. But he shared a piece about rats and fear where the question is, is your fear your fear? So is it actually yours or did you inherit that fear? So what they did was they took, I think it was rats or mice, and they had them in a cage and they released the smell of cherry blossom into the cage. And then they gave the rats or the mice a mild shock, electric shock, right? And they had little brain scanners on them. (laughs) Imagine these little tiny brain scanners. And then because they have a quick life cycle, they did it with the offspring of that batch and they just released the smell of cherry blossom in and the again brain scanners the amygdala so the fear centers of the mice lit up right but then they did it with the grandchildren same thing happened they never had experienced the fear the reason for the fear the the shock but the smell had triggered them and primed them for the fear and i always think about that when go it takes a long time to change the culture of an organization mm. because of that, because sometimes the fear lingers and you can't just get rid of everybody from an organization when you're leading a transformation effort. You need to actually gradually do it and show people that it's a safe environment. And this brings us beautifully to the next one, which is collaboration, this collaborative yeah. environment where, yes, I disagree with you, but I'm not again, fearful of disagreeing with you. And I actually just wrote a blog today about this, that they measured the brains, the fear centers again of the human brain. And they showed when somebody does that and they speak up against the majority consensus, the fear centers light up. So it's not easy for that person. And, and I, you know, I want to recognize that to our audience as well. Those, because many of you listen to the show, that is not easy 
to be able to speak up but you need that collaborative environment in order to have more people do it yeah absolutely and and so collaboration again is a huge book and people you know written brilliant books just on one aspect of it and obviously it's only a quarter of my book so you know terms and conditions apply what i bring <laughs> to the world of collaboration but i because the book was written with consciousness we've done it slightly out of order but that's fine because yeah. it starts let's do consciousness curiosity creativity collaboration the way i frame collaboration because this was really aimed at the individual was if you are if you are purpose-led you therefore have the courage to step into a different kind of world to stretch yourself. If you've got the focus, you've time. If you're curious, you gather the cognitive fuel and ask the right questions, which actually gets you to be more creative. So the way I framed collaboration was, well, if you're having ideas, you need fellow human beings to tell you if you're going crazy or not. Uh, because let's face it, even the most talented people, most of their ideas don't work. They're not great. It's only a small p portfolio of your ideas that are worth taking forward. So you have to go and experiment in the real world. And, uh, and what I advise people to do, and the science is supporting this, is to form uh, a wider network of people. Like you and I, mm. you know, got to know each other through this podcast. And it's, uh, you know, we, we know, know lots of people, but when we had a coffee before that, you know, when I was listening to you, to you telling me about your business, my, my brain was pinging. I was getting new, in, interesting ideas. And that's what we need as human beings. We need a network of fellow collaborators. It will make us far more innovative and creative. And all the... Science shows people with what they call weak ties in their network, i.e. lots of people outside of that Dunbar's number of 150 people we know really well, they are more innovative because they're just simply getting more information mm. and it's challenging them. Um, but to come back to kind of collective intelligence, uh, the, that, that part of it, I think I'll just tell the story of the brain trust at Pixar because I think it's a good one. It just, it kind of shows you what it is. And so this is the story of that, that Ed Catmull, uh, who was the founder of Pixar, which I think is probably one of the most consistently creative and commercially successful organizations around. So I use it a lot as an example. He says those brilliant movies, you know, The Incredibles and Toy Story, when they first muted as an idea, he calls them ugly babies which is a horrible phrase because you don't want any we're, baby. We're all you don't want to be doing, you know, let's face it. Most <laughs> I, I always have that where, where somebody kind of goes, what do you think of my baby? And I'm like kind of going, yeah, it's pretty ugly. It's actually. And I'm terrible at hiding it. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I just don't answer. I, I, let's just pause on, on I'm that. I'm going under a tunnel. Get thinking, oh, God, that that's one. a really ugly baby. <laughs> so, but this is kind of ideas. And, uh, you know, because we've all seen the finished products and they're not ugly babies. The, the Incredibles, I mean, I watched it 10 times because my boys uh, were pretty young at that, just that period. And I thought it was really good. So if you go back, it was an ugly baby when it started. It was misshapen. The characters weren't there. And I think that's really inspiring because if Ed Catmull and those incredibly talented people at Pixar are having ugly babies and they're, they're the good ideas, the rest didn't even make it to ugly baby phase. And then they become better. I think that encourages all of us to try and work on ideas and incrementally improve them. But the, it's the crucible in which they do this that's interesting. They call it the brain trust. And this is something that people can apply to their own life and also to their organization. And they take the, this idea into the brain trust and out. And the people on the brain trust, I think it's about 15 people or so, they're picked not just because they're like brilliant directors or technically brilliant. They're picked because they're also empathetic. 
they can also help someone develop without crushing them. We're like going to say, that baby is so ugly, you should go and like jump off a cliff. They, the people leave the room with new ideas and they have a psychologically safe idea uh, discussion. And that's how they develop their ideas and come up with these incredible products. They're humble at the start and they all come together. And I love that. I think that's just a great thing that we can all replicate. I, I love that. And um, one of my, I suppose, heroes in innovation is Buckminster Fuller. And yeah. he has a beautiful quote. Uh, There's nothing in a caterpillar that tells you it's going to be a butterfly. And that's what that says to me is that you, somebody may have the most embryonic idea, but you don't know how it's going to play out and you can't crush it on somebody. Not at the early stages. You you can, and I think this is why the importance of an MVP, a minimal viable product, get it out there, see, do people like it? Can I play with it, etc.? I mean, this episode is an MVP in yeah. a way. It's, you know, hopefully not an ugly baby. It's definitely a caterpillar because, again, and this is thanks to Zai, I am able to actually play with it and go, how can we actually build this and grow it, it, it differently? And by the way, to you, the listener as well, please do give us feedback, what you think, how I can improve the show as always, but also how did this episode land for you as well? So give us a shout on the innovationshow.io and the innovationshow.io newsletter. Don't just say get another guest. That's, that's, that's just rude. <laughs> so, so let's bring it back to curiosity. You, you mentioned that, you know, it was one of the things that, that drives you. Certainly, absolutely drive me. I can't, like, when somebody mentions something else in the book, when this is the problem for me, I, I'll read it and then there'll be a reference to this other book and I'll go down the rabbit hole and find that book and then I'll buy that and I'll just have this network of books as a result and and I'm so grateful for whatever in my life happened to create that curiosity. But it is so important because I thought about this from several ways. You mentioned Pixar and associate for me is Steve Jobs. And one of the things he said that is so valuable, like him or love him, is that you you have to pursue you have to like the thing you're pursuing in life because that will help you persevere all the crap you need to I always, always think of that image of Shawshank Redemption, the, all those tunnels of crap that you have to get through <laughs> yeah. in order to get to your vision, because you will inevitably encounter those things. But one of the other things that drives you, so it's like this magnetic force of the vision that you have, and, and that goes back to the storytelling you talked about at the start, the, the why, the purpose, the North Star. But then there's the curiosity as well to actually yeah. go and investigate different parts and kind of go, and ask yourself, back to what you said about the leadership, bringing in pro- positive questioning into an organization becomes so important. It, it, I think, um, well, we're seeing it across the board. You and I are lucky enough to see kind of uh, the sort of RFPs that come out of companies now, you know, requesting, you know, leadership support. Curiosity is just in all of them. And for good reason, because um, it is the prelude to creativity, team and individual creativity. Team and individual cre- creativity is the prelude to innovation. Innovation is the prelude to next year's revenues. So that's the obvious connection. And um, I mean, there's so much to say about curiosity from an individual perspective as well. And if anyone's out there, one, one of the things that I wrote about curiosity before creativity, we all would like to feel that we can be a bit more creative. But it's a bit like happiness. Don't aim directly at it. <laughs> Try and go on a circuitous route. And, and the best place to start, I think, is curiosity. Because if you can get in there, that's when you are learning. 
new things. And the important thing, I don't know, uh, have you ever noticed this, Aidan? When, when you like you buy a new car or get something new, like for example, I just bought a new Labrador. It's my third Labrador in my life. I saw it on our uh, call, our black Labrador. Uh, and, uh, and suddenly I'm seeing black Labradors everywhere when I'm walking around. Now I wasn't before. There's not more black Lab- Labradors in the world. Just my reticular activating system in my brain has been turned on. Suddenly there's a whole new part of the world, in this case, black Labradors that's available to me. That happens to all of us with new shoes and new cars. And so that's because curiosity is on a kind of an inverted u-shape when you don't know anything about a subject you're not interested in it you learn a little bit about it and it starts to pull you in because you start to see it everywhere and all creativity 99 of creativity is when what an idea jumps the fence so the way that u-shaped curve works is really interesting when it comes to innovation um i mean did you know why we've got all those crazy fonts. You know, when you go onto a computer, like you've got the huge drop-down list of Calibri and Times, New Roman. and um, That came up from, you know, you mentioned Steve Jobs. That came from Steve Jobs' curiosity because when he dropped out of college, he went back and sat in the back of a calligraphy course and, uh, you know, which is the art of handwriting. And from then on, he became a bit of a font nerd for the rest of his life. He just <laughs> likes fonts. So when the Mac came around, he wanted the word processor on the map to ha- the Mac to have all the best fonts. So that's an idea, you know, calligraphy. Sorry, but I'm just thinking uh, speed dating. And it's like going, so hi, I, hi, I'm Steve. Yeah. What do you like to do, Steve? <laughs> I love fonts. And you're yeah, going, uh, yeah. Next. Sorry, uh, <laughs> the James yeah. Bond thing where you drop into the but, sharks. But you might find the right woman who's like, Oh my God, I've been waiting that for that all my life, Steve. The music starts <laughs> What do you playing? like best, Ariel? <laughs> okay, so... <laughs> Sorry. So, no, I and I just think that's really cool because it's just a very small innovation, but it's the reason why we've got that in the world. Uh, I'm not sure how massively useful that is, but it's it's an example of curiosity that, that roamed widely and allowed cal- calligraphy to jump the fence into computing. Uh, and that's, you know, what, if we want new things in our life, that's what we need to do. So that brings us now to empathy. And we had, I was telling about Elliot Aronson, like I'm an Elliot Aronson fanboy now. Um, 19 year old man, had him on the show last week. Just his writing is so beautiful. But he, he talked at the end of the show about this invention he had called the Jigsaw School. So he brought in the idea of the Jigsaw School and it brings so many of the elements you talked about today together. The idea was that if you think about a classroom in the period of time that he brought in this very segregated America, the Brown versus the Board of Education passing had just happened. So blacks were able to mix with whites in schools again, but there was fist fights in the classrooms in Texas, for example, very segregated society. So he's like, we have to do something. So he took it upon himself, him and his research team. And they brought in this idea where there was teams of five within a classroom because what he saw was everybody competed so you know this idea where the teacher asks a question and you and i both know the answer it's like oh 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 oh, and right. you're holding the hand up right so instead of that competition what the teacher would do was assign us a, a certain part of the jigsaw to work on and then we worked as a team as a collaborative team and then for me to get 100%, I needed everybody else on my team to perform well. So instead of actually becoming a competitive, it became collaborative. And if Greg was struggling 
on his piece, I would help him instead of compete with him. And what it did was it drew out the humanity, the spaceship Earth of everybody, the whole idea that we're all in this together. But then on top of that, the knock-on effect was that's where it started. And this this is so, I think it's so important for the workplace. It started there and then it trickled into life. So out in the playground, these kids started to mix together. They started to collaborate together and it was just wonderful. It, it, we finished that with a really tear-jerking story. So this little kid called Willie Johnson, the, the teacher decides to bring them to this this really poor class from a very underprivileged background, bring them to a museum. And they had looked at a picture of this, this artist had drawn of him and his mother holding hands. And she goes, why do you think, great question, right? Why do you think the artist drew this picture of him and his mother rather than just keeping the photograph? So class goes quiet. They all consider this. And this kid, Willie Johnson in the back class, smallest kid in the class, never spoken. He had lost his mother to a drug overdose. He pipes up and he goes, and he, and he points to the hands on the portrait that the artist has drawn. And he says, because he wanted to capture the softness of her hands in that picture and the whole class just quiet, which as Elliot said, was a miracle in itself. First time class has ever been quiet. Wow. But then the bully of the class, biggest guy in the class goes over to Willie and she's gone, oh, oh what's going to happen here? And he hugs him and the whole class come together and hug. And it was just talk about the power of storytelling. Yeah. That for me was like, that is empathy. And yeah. it started with a mechanical thing, changing the environment, changing how people collaborated together, trickles into real life. And all of a sudden you have true empathy. Yeah. And, you know, I think we, we talk, talked at the start, didn't we, about why empathy is more important in organizational settings because of hybrid working and because of a generation of people that want to feel like they're understood and they're nurtured. But, you know, if we just finish by thinking more broadly about the, the era in which we're living, we're living in a, an era of digital tribalism, of political divisions across the world, in the United States, in the UK. And, and I think the art of empathy, yeah, one, one it's, it's like curiosity, by the way, it's not a fixed trait. You can develop it further in yourself. And two, it's never been more needed because, you know, the, the idea of reaching across to other people that disagree with us and trying to understand what they're saying is incredibly needed. I mean, I don't know if you, I'm a fan of Brené Brown, you mm -hmm. know, she talks about sympathy saying, oh, you're in trouble. I'm really sorry. Would you like a cup of tea? Uh, empathy is <laughs> Thanks, like, uh, so, so, so you say you're down in a hole. Empathy is I literally climb down in the hole and say, I know what it's like to be in a hole. I'm here for you. And compassion is I'm going to do something to move towards you. I'm going to support you. And that's what we need more of uh, in the world. We, you know, it's never been more important for human beings to come together when AI and machines are contributing to dividing us. Greg, that is a beautiful way to finish. And the message, it comes full circle, Spaceship Earth, brother, everybody together, 
crew, no passengers. <laughs> I want to thank our our guest today, first in-person guest. Hopefully you like the experiment. It is a caterpillar. Hopefully become a butterfly someday. Never could quite get there. But he is author of The Human Edge, How Curiosity and Creativity Are Your Superpowers in the Digital Economy. He is Greg Orm. Thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute brilliant honor to be here. Thanks, Aidan. Thanks so much. And as always, thanks to our partner, Zai. Zai is a global financial services company supporting innovation in all its forms including this show thanks to them by supporting them you're supporting us go to hellozai.com to find out more